0: Tonight's reading is from 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 to 17. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place, because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go, find out where he is, the king ordered, so that I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all round Elisha.
1: Well, as Paul mentioned, what we do twice a year is we have these things called Vision Sundays, and they're times when we just step back, step aside, and think and remind each other about who we are as a church and why we do what we do. Maybe you're new to P's and G's. Maybe you're thinking about making P's and G's your home. Uh, Maybe you've been here for a while and are thinking, what What is this church about? Why do they do what they do? Well, that's the the whole purpose of this day, is to remind each other what we believe God has called us to do and what God has called us to be. If you go in uh, the website TED Talks and look at the most popular TED Talks, uh, one of the most popular speakers is a guy called Simon Sinek or Sinek. And he's one of the world's leading experts on how organizations work, how companies can get better. And his first book was a book called Why. And his thesis is something called The Golden Circle. He said that most companies operate uh, from the inside out. They tell you what they do and they tell you how they do it. But Simon Sinek says that the most imaginative companies, the most inspirational companies, companies like Apple, they actually work from the inside out. They start with the why. So Apple's aim is to break and challenge the status quo. How they do it is by making beautiful things. Then they tell you about the computer. Someone like Dell would simply start with the computer. Do you want to buy a computer? But Apple start with the why. We want to challenge the status quo. We want to do things differently. We want to make you think differently. They inspire their staff and charge loads and loads of monies for products like this that none of us can operate. (laughs) So why is really, really important. And that's what we're doing This evening, we're taking a few minutes to step back and remind each other why we do what we do as a church, why we do the ministry activities that we do, why we have the staff that we do, why we do what the organizations and the courses, why we do everything that we do in the life of this church, why we do it. And I want to do it by looking at that particular passage in Scripture from 2 Kings chapter 6 that uh, Georgie just read for us. The reason for choosing this particular passage um, was that um, we do this event two or three times a term called Kingdom Come. It's a time when we come together to worship and to pray and to listen to God. And uh, at the end of the last Kingdom Come, a couple of weeks ago, Mark, uh, who's leading worship tonight, um, just finished with this particular passage and just spoke it out over us and it resonated with me and it seemed to be that God was saying that's for you now this is what you need to pray for peace and peace. this is what you need to to ask me for that that people might see clearly that people might see as I see And there's this amazing prayer where Elisha prays for his servant, Lord, open his eyes so that he might see. The last few months, if you've been around P's and G's, have been, if we're honest, quite difficult for us as a church. We've had two significant deaths in the life of P's and G's. Uh, A young woman called Rachel, who was only 25, 26 when she died, and then someone called Ray, who had been around this church for 32, 33 years, even longer than me. And losing those two people has been really hard. There have been at least two occasions when I've found myself uh, in, in a shop and just felt almost overwhelmed by grief. It's taken me by surprise. And I know that's lots of people's feelings and lots of people's emotions as we've gone through the last couple of months. It's been a tough time. It's been a really hard time. It's been a time when, if we're honest, many of us in the church have felt outnumbered, we've felt overwhelmed, we have felt surrounded. And that's exactly what happens in this story. We're told that there's this group of people, one of the tribes nearing the people of Israel called the Aramaeans, And they decide to start to raid and wage war against the people of Israel. But something happens. Whenever they start to plan an attack, whenever they start to plan an ambush, it's as if the Israelites know that they're coming. Did you notice in that passage that God told Elisha the things that the king of Aram spoke even in his bedroom? That's a scary thought. But whenever the king of Aram said, we're going to lay a trap here, God told Elisha who then told the king of Israel and the Israelite army knew where the enemy was and they were able to avoid them. And time after time, literally the Hebrew is again and again, more than once, literally. God tells Elisha, who tells the king of Israel, who then tells his army to avoid the enemy. And there the Arameans are waiting to ambush the people of Israel, waiting to ambush the Israelite army, waiting to ambush the king of Israel, and the king of Israel doesn't appear. The Israelite army doesn't appear because they bypass where the Arameans are waiting to ambush them. The king of Aram is furious. He gathers his military commanders together and says, which one of us is on Israel's side? I.e., there's got to be a spy in here. There's got to be one of you lot that's telling the Israelites where our forces are going. You're the ones who are revealing my military plans to the enemy. One of the military commanders speaks up and goes, no, 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 it's not us. But the God of Elisha tells Elisha, the prophet of Israel, exactly where we're going to be. He tells Elisha, the prophet, the things, the very things that you speak about in your bedroom." The Aramean king is absolutely furious. He says, let's find out where this guy is. And the report comes back. He's in this, this place, this town called Dothan. And so the Aramean king sends his forces, a mighty force of horses and chariots, to Dothan. And dawn breaks. And Elisha's servant wakes up first. And he goes to the window, he goes to stand on the city wall, and he looks out, and all of a sudden he notices that something is there that was not there the previous night when they went to sleep. Because surrounding the city of Dothan is the Aramean army. And wherever Elisha's servant looks, All he can see are horses and chariots and chariots and horses and horses and chariots and chariots and horses. And he realizes that they are completely surrounded. And he's scared stiff. He thinks, this is it. The Aramaeans have discovered where we are. The Aramaeans have surrounded us. There's no way out. And this is curtains for us. He goes and wakes his master, Elisha, up, and Elisha comes out, and Elisha sees the horses and the chariots, but Elisha isn't afraid. We're not told it, but probably the reason Elisha isn't afraid is because God has told Elisha that the Aramaeans are coming. But it would be a very odd situation if every other time God had told Elisha that where the Arameans were. But on this particular occasion, God decided not to reveal it to Elisha, even though he was the target, even though he was the one who was being hunted, even though he was the object of the Aramaeans' attack. So Elisha has probably gone to bed the previous night knowing full well that when he wakes up the next morning, they're going to be outnumbered, they're going to be surrounded. But he hasn't told his servant And his servant is scared stiff. Elisha comes forward and prays this prayer. Open the eyes of his heart, Lord. Lord, open his eyes that he might see. He utters this phrase, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And he prays for his servant that he might see see things as they really are. And God does something miraculous. God reveals to the servant what Elisha can see. And suddenly, the servant, when he looks, doesn't just see the Aramean army, doesn't just see the Aramean horses and chariots, but above and behind, and beyond, and in much larger numbers, and in much greater force, he sees the horses and chariots of fire of the army of the Lord. And he looks, and he looks, and he sees the army of the Lord surrounding, not just Dothan, but surrounding the Aramean army. And he realizes the truth of what Elisha has just said. Said to him, Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. As I say, we've gone through a bit of a time as a church. And as we've gone through the last couple of months, it's perhaps been easy at times to feel surrounded. It's been easy at times to feel overwhelmed. Maybe. Something's gone on in your own life and that is how you're feeling this evening. Maybe you're a fresher at university and and that's how you feel if if you're honest with yourself and with God this evening. That's how you're feeling. You've you've gone through the first two weeks of term maybe and, and you're feeling a bit overwhelmed. You're feeling a bit surrounded. You're feeling a bit submerged almost with what's happening to you. well, what is God saying to us as a church in the midst of those emotions? I think the first thing is He's saying, Lord, open their eyes. He's saying, I want to open your eyes. I want to restore a sense of perspective. I want to restore a sense of proportion. And I want to restore that clarity of vision so that you see things as they really are. Most of us, if we're honest, forget who God is. Most sin occurs because we either forget or we deliberately choose not to remember who God is. If we remembered who God was and how he wanted us to live, we would not do most of the things that we do which are not the things that God wants us to do, say or think. Sin happens when we Deliberately either choose not to remember or indeed forget who God is. These feelings aren't sinful, but the two sometimes are linked. And God's saying, remember who I am. Remember who you are. Remember how I view you. And look to me and see me more clearly. Clearly. Over the last four or five years, our vision as a church, we think, has been fairly clear. Four or five years ago, we felt God calling us to adopt this vision statement. We we felt God calling us to be a church that makes whole life disciples, sharing the whole of the gospel with the whole of society through churches of grace. To be whole life disciples so that our discipleship of Jesus Christ would permeate, affect, influence, shape, inform every single area of our lives. That it wouldn't just be about what we do on Sundays, but it would be about how we approach where we work or where we study. It would be about how we spend our money. It would be about how we spend our leisure time. It would be about how we think about politics, about how we think about every single aspect of our lives that we would be whole life disciples with the whole of our lives given over to Jesus. And with Jesus influencing and shaping and informing the whole of our lives. We want to share the whole of the gospel. That it's not just about words words or actions, but it's about actions and words. It's about evangelism and social action and social justice. The two go hand in hand. It's not either or, it's both and. One person said it's like having a pair of scissors, one without the other, it just doesn't quite cut it. But if you have the both, then you can make some impact. So we want to share the whole of the gospel with the whole of society, i.e., That every single part of Edinburgh should be affected and influenced by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That everybody of whatever background should feel free to come into this church and other churches and hear about Jesus. And we wanted to plant churches of grace. And we felt God calling us to, to deliberately identify that the plants that we do are churches of grace, of God's unconditional love. Because as we look at the church in Scotland, ironically for a nation who's almost adopted Amazing Grace as its national hymn, the church in Scotland, our life has not been characterized by grace. It's been characterized by legalism and rules and regulation and religion of whatever denomination, Protestant, Catholic, Church of Scotland, Episcopal like us, Baptist, charismatic. There's all sorts of rules and laws in the church in Scotland. But grace is very different. Grace is about a gift. Grace is about God's unconditional love that we can't earn, that we never deserve, but is simply offered to us as a gift. So we sense God calling us to be a church that did that. And we adopted what we called four arrows to help us do that. Four arrows, four ways, four areas, discipleship, social transformation, theological education, and church planting. And over the last four or five years, we've seen God work in amazing ways in those four different areas. We've seen people become Christians through the Alpha course. We've seen uh, connect groups begin and people grow in their faith. We've seen nearly 400 people go through our school of theology on Saturday mornings thinking and learning about what they believe and why they believe it and thinking more deeply about their faith. We've seen the growth and development of soul food, which is a meal that we offer to people on the margins of society, or people who are homeless, or or people who are rough sleepers. And we do that every Saturday here in church, and we feed 100 guests and about 50 uh, members of the team every week. We've seen the growth and development of babies and toddlers. So every Thursday morning and every Thursday afternoon, this place is transformed into what edinburgh under fives which is like the sort of bible for parents with small children in this city they describe our babies and toddler group as the best toddler group in the city amazing and it is complete chaos and there's parents and there's carers and there's children and there's toys everywhere and it's brilliant both in the morning and in the afternoon We've continued to, to help along with other churches, the caravan and the night shelter with Bethany Christian uh, Trust and Edinburgh City Mission. We have church members serving as street pastors in the middle of the night. As a church, we've supported Safe Families for Children, Home for Good, Tearfund, Fund, World Vision and International Justice Mission. Plus, there are now people who are ordained and training for ordained ministry in the Church of England and in the Scottish Episcopal Church who five years ago were once sitting where you sit now. There are people who are leading churches and being trained to lead churches who we sensed five years ago that we should start to pray and to call people to give themselves for ordination, and we've seen it happen. And because we had James Green as a curate, and he looked about 12, people who were younger, under the age of 30, thought, well, if God called James Green, he could call me. If God could work through him, he might be able to work through me. And people under the age of 30 are starting to offer themselves for ordination in the church in Scotland in a way that we haven't seen seen before. And now we find ourselves in this odd position. We, we also felt that we should plant churches. And so five years ago, we planted uh, All Souls Fife and Dean Norby, who was our previous Curate, who looked a lot older than James Green because he was a lot older than James Green, Uh, he took three existing Episcopal churches and uh, he's kept those churches going. There's about 20 people in each of those three churches. And now, as well as those three churches, he runs a contemporary service in Inverkeithing High School with about 150 people meeting every Sunday. Eighteen months ago, we helped uh, to send Rich and Jenny out and they planted mustard seed onto Easter Road. And uh, we sent about 60 people with them, and they've started to grow and started to develop. And we wanted those two churches, All Souls 5 and Mustard Seed, to be churches of grace. But earlier this year, we realized that something was happening. A lot of the goals and the plans and the objectives that we thought would take us through to 2020, we have already done. And so we were faced with a choice. We were two years ahead of schedule. Now, there's always more that we can do about discipleship. There's always more that we can know about Jesus. And there's more that we can get to know about Jesus and deeper ways that we can experience Jesus. So our discipleship won't ever end. But in lots of the others, what we planned to do, we'd already done. And so we were faced with an option. We either sort of sit around for two years twiddling our thumbs or, and this is what we sense God saying to us, we start to discover and to discern what God might want us to do and be over the next five years. And so that's where we are now. We're praying for the last three months. We've had a strategy group meeting. It's a group of staff, a group of the vestry, and some other church members, and they've been praying together and meeting together. We've used Kingdom Come to start to pray. We had a meeting yesterday morning with folk in leadership in the church, and they've started to feed ideas in as well. But what might God want us to do and be over the next five years? And one thing has really struck me as I've thought about this over the last couple of weeks, because I don't think it's about strategies, and I don't think it's about tactics, and I don't think it's about goals. Although those things are important. For me, really, it's all been crystallized around one particular person. One of the significant deaths that has taken place in the life of P's and G's over the last... A uh, couple of months has been Ray Dunn. That's a picture of Ray at a wedding. And uh, Ray was an amazing guy, and we had his funeral service here in church uh, a week yesterday. And Ray was around P's and G's for the last 32, 33 years. And Ray was a colorful character in all sorts of ways. Uh, Ray um, became a Christian 32, 33 years ago. He came from a um, quite a colorful background. He'd been in prison. He was addicted to drugs. He was addicted to alcohol. And then he met Jesus. It wasn't an easy transition for him. It wasn't a, an overnight conversion. Uh, the first few years of him being involved in this church, uh, he used to steal quite a lot. Uh, he used to steal from individual church members. He used to steal uh, from us as a church. He would then bring it back the next day. And a few years ago, I said, why did he used to nick stuff? And he said, oh, it was just to annoy Michael Maudsley, who was the rector at the time. And he used to bring stuff back. And, and 10 years ago, when we came back into the new building, uh, Ray came and said, can I, can I be one of the caretakers? And we said, yeah, sure. So on Tuesday evenings, when the worship group practiced, there was Ray. On Thursday nights when the Alpha course was happening, there was Ray. And seven o'clock for years, Ray was the caretaker in the foyer welcoming people. And Ray used to find it hysterically funny when we used to take the offering in the service and he used to be given the money. And Ray used to say, this is God's sense of humor. I used to steal this. Now you're giving it to me. But Ray's life then saw a journey of him growing in his discipleship of Jesus. It wasn't easy. At times, it was bumpy. Um, After 10 years of Ray being a Christian, Roger, who had led him to faith in Christ, he was the rector of the time, did the job that I do now, and he went to lead a church in Canada And Ray couldn't understand why Roger would leave him, why he would go to Canada. Indeed, Roger, after a few months in Canada, thought himself, why have I come to Canada? Because it wasn't working out well. And Ray was furious with Roger for going to Canada and leaving him here. And when I arrived, Ray was furious with me for not being Roger. And so twice in the first six months that we lived here, Ray rang up in the middle of the night, threatening to come round and burn our house down. The second time, we thought it was a bit serious, so we did ring the police, and they went to see Ray the next day, and they said, Ray Dunn, aye, did you threaten to burn your minister's house down? Yep. Stop it. And Ray thought for a moment and said, okay, and never threatened again to burn our house down. A few years later, I remember it was either 99 or 2000, meeting Ray outside on one Good Friday, and he'd just received the correct diagnosis for his mental health condition. He'd been diagnosed as suffering from schizophrenia, and he was on the right drugs for the first time in his life. And the old angry Ray started to disappear, and a different Ray appeared. Somebody who was warm and generous and hospitable, and very, very funny. At most weddings, he would uh, tell the groom when they arrived with 45 minutes to go, there's still time to escape. You don't have to go through it. If we didn't get to the foyer and intercept Ray meeting the bride, Ray again would approach the bride with five minutes to go and say, there's a car, car is running outside. You can escape. It's okay. You don't have to go through with it. But Ray loved this church and Ray loved the people in this church because what Ray experienced from people in this church was a church of grace. Ray experienced people who loved him and welcomed him and trusted him. Not always, as I said at his funeral, sometimes some of us were tempted to behave like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. We were tempted to wonder whether it was really true, whether it was really genuine, and whether Ray's conversion to Christianity would really last and really take, and how could we trust him? But actually, Ray's conversion was genuine. He was able to speak to people about Jesus that I can't speak to, and a lot of Christian people couldn't speak to, often using words that a lot of Christian people wouldn't use. Ray wasn't perfect. He wasn't a saint. He never pretended to be. He had a great interest in young people, lots of our young people he would listen to and and pray for. He would give them lots of wise, sage advice that certainly wasn't the advice that their parents wanted them to hear. He had a particular soft spot uh, for our three kids, Um, and uh, a few weeks before he died, I took uh, our daughter Iona to go and visit Ray in the Royal Infirmary. And uh, when you go and do a pastoral visit in hospital, you're supposed to be a bit dispassionate, try and keep a sort of professional distance. Uh, but I went and, and to get a blue chair so that we could have a, uh, so a couple of chairs to sit around Ray's hospital bed. And as Iona bent over and hugged Ray, I almost went. Because to me, it was a beautiful picture of the church being the church. Now, why do I tell the story about Ray? Because I would love us to see more Rays. Not in terms of holding people like Ray up as a trophy. That's a dangerous thing to do for a church like us. Because Ray wasn't a trophy. He was a person. And he was somebody who experienced and gave and shared the love and the grace of Jesus. Because he had felt it. And he knew it. And he lived it. And it made a huge difference. His whole life was transformed and changed by meeting Jesus. I came across this quote this week from a a spiritual writer, a Christian uh, called Dallas Willard. He said this, There is no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve. It's quite a big statement, quite a bold statement. Now notice what Dallas Willard doesn't say. He doesn't say that there is no problem in human life that can't be solved by becoming a Christian. He doesn't say there's no problem in human life that can't be solved by going on an alpha course. He doesn't say there's no problem in human life that can't be solved by simply praying a prayer of commitment. He says there's no problem in human life that can't be solved by not following Jesus that actually being apprenticed to Jesus, by being discipled by Jesus, by coming and sitting at the feet of Jesus and allowing the character and the teaching of Jesus and the spirit of Jesus to inform and influence and shape your thinking and your living, that means that any problem in life can be faced. That story from 2 Kings ends in a a striking way. Georgie uh, ended where we'd asked her to end it. But if you read on in the passage, you'll see what happens next. What happens next is that Elisha prays a second prayer. He prays that his servant might be able to see clearly. And then when his servant has seen the army and the chariots of fire, he then prays a second prayer. And he prays... Having prayed that his servant might see, he prays that the Arameans would be blinded. And they are. And Elisha then leads the Aramean army ten miles to the city of Samaria. And when they're in the city of Samaria, and when they themselves are surrounded by the Israelite army, God allows the Arameans to see again. And the king of Israel comes to Elisha and says, Shall we kill them? You've given them, you've delivered them into our hands. Should we bump them off? That would be the end of their Aramean problem. If we wipe out the army now, that's it, game over. And Elisha says no to the king of Israel. He says, Prepare a banquet for them. Give them food, give them drink treat them well, treat them with kindness. In our language, what he's saying is treat them with grace. Don't treat them as they deserve to be treated because they wanted to kill you, but respond to their violence, to their threats with kindness, with hospitality, with generosity, with grace. And the Aramaeans are so struck by the way in which the Israelites respond that they never attack the Israelite army or the nation of Israel again. The Aramaeans go back with food and drink for the journey and they never attack Israel again because they've experienced grace. Ray experienced and gave out grace. Just like the Aramaeans And whatever we do as a church, whatever God has in store for us as a people over the next four or five years, I think it should be characterized by grace, characterized by kindness, characterized by generosity, characterized by treating people not in the way that they deserve because God does not treat us in the way that we deserve, but has treated us with grace and with kindness and with generosity. So it may be this week that as you spend time in the prayer room, you sense God saying something to you about the sort of things that we should do and be as a church. Maybe over the next few weeks, not in the prayer room, elsewhere. It might be on a tram, might be on a bus, might be on a train, might be sitting at home, might be in your university flat. It might be wherever you will be. But if you sense God speaking to you, sharing a passage of Scripture or giving you a picture perhaps because we're Anglicans and that's what God does, then email it in. Say, I was praying and, and I sensed God say this, because we love to gather what we think God is saying to us together as a church family. Maybe this evening you're in that situation, a bit like Elisha's servant, of feeling surrounded. And the thing that you need to know this evening is that, that God is with you, that there are more with you than those who seem against you. Paul in the New Testament put it in a slightly different way. He said, he that is in us, the Holy Spirit, is greater than he that is in the world, the devil. He that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. There are more with us than those who are against us. Maybe you're in that situation at the moment of feeling surrounded Maybe you're in the situation at the moment of feeling overwhelmed. Maybe at the moment your eyes need to be opened so that you can see things clearly as they really are. That you might see Jesus for who he really is. That you might see yourself as Jesus sees you. That you might see other people around you as Jesus sees them. That you might see our city or our nation As Jesus sees them. That's what it means to have a vision. That's what it means to see clearly. Not to put on a daft pair of sunglasses, but to see with the eyes that God sees. That's what Elisha's servant experienced in Dothan thousands of years ago. And through the gift of the Holy Spirit, God still promises to help us see clearly tonight.